This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. And it's brought to you by Pelgrane Press. We're here to talk about one topic this episode. Remembering the life and legacy of our friend... And towering figure in the art of role-playing... Greg Stafford. Everyone remembers their first trip to the island of Alamarha. You mean that strange, conspiracy-ridden island off the coast of North Africa known for its lax regulations and mysteriously authoritarian government? I thought it was in the Mediterranean. Didn't everyone? Atlas Games, the publisher of Feng Shui and Unknown Armies, is celebrating their recent Kickstarter success. You're talking about the Kickstarter for the new edition of Over the Edge, the legendary role-playing game of weird urban danger? Indeed, and dear listeners, you're invited to join other backers by pre-ordering the game via BackerKit. I'm putting on my state-sponsored party hat as we speak. If rampant New Age occultism, gangs of baboons, murderous assassins, and mad scientists in a modern-day setting of weirdness and menace tickle your fancy, this is the game for you. Over the Edge is coming to game stores in 2019, but you can pre-order on BackerKit now at atlas-games.com slash kickstartote. It's exactly the same Alamarha you always knew. Only this time, it's different. So we're, uh, as you just heard in the intro, we have an elegiac uh, gaming hut for you, and we're going to break format this week. Uh, normally, as you know, we do four topics a week, but uh, if we're talking about Greg Stafford, that's at least four topics and uh, maybe more. We'll try and keep it down to four topics, though. Yes. Uh, so we, we're both, of course, very uh, saddened to hear that uh, that Greg passed. Uh, and, uh, we need to talk about him as our, as our friend and, and as, uh, a, uh, titan in the history of role playing. Uh, I'm just gonna start out by saying that if it weren't for the work of Greg Stafford, uh, you would not be hearing this podcast. Uh, because if I had not been exposed to, uh, his work as an, uh, early gamer, uh, I wouldn't be doing this. I would be doing, uh, goodness knows what else. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, not this. I mean, we might have a Lovecraftian theater podcast together. Uh, perhaps. Uh, but, but it's very unlikely. We would, but we wouldn't have met. No. Well, I mean, in, in the, in the global Lovecraftian, well, there wouldn't have been global Lovecraftian theater without Call of Cthulhu, which there wouldn't have been again without Greg. So yeah, no, we would both be doing boring things instead of yeah. this podcast. Sandy Peterson and his, uh, uh, comments about Greg said that he, uh, owed, uh, uh Greg his career as well. And so of course, yeah, there would be no Call of Cthulhu. Uh, perhaps, you know, Sandy would have come along and, and made something similar to another company or, or some such. And, you know, we don't want to go down an alternate reality rabbit hole. Although, of course, uh, when uh, remembering a titan of gaming, uh, that I suppose in itself would be its own tribute. Uh, when I go, everybody feel entitled to go down an alternate reality alternate, ra- alternate history rabbit hole. Yes. Yeah. Will there be another kind of rabbit hole? That's the question. And uh, if you are a uh, role-playing gamer who likes the kind of things that we talk about on this show, if you uh, are interested in games with a story focus, uh, you might not be here either uh, you, uh, because uh, Greg's work uh, and the idea of it being a, a narrative art uh, influenced so many other people. So there would be no Ars Magica uh, without... 
Dragon without RuneQuest. It very specifically modeled uh, the different clans on RuneQuest, and therefore uh, there would also be no vampire, and uh, there would be nothing by John Wick, I would um, imagine, and nothing by a lot of other people. And yeah. uh, the idea that a, a role-playing supplement is something that you read on a and, and appreciate uh, kind of as literature is also very much part of uh, uh, Greg and, and of Chaosium. And so the kind of stuff that Pelgrane does yeah. would not exist, not just because you and I would be doing something different, but <laughs> and not just because there'd be no call of Cthulhu to license trail of Cthulhu, but because there would have been no presentation of game supplements as story. Although it, I, it, it's hard to say whether or not, you know, the sort of, uh, linked, Dungeons might have turned into something, but I think it's safe to say that what they turned into would probably not have recapitulated the dramatic unities, etc., the way that Call of Cthulhu Adventures did, and that therefore encouraged a literary approach to scenario design. Maybe I don't know. There's a lot going the, on. Uh, the the world of of arts development is is highly contingent. It's not like mm-hmm. You know, history itself with their, you know, they're often big historical economic forces that are just going to happen. But in the world of uh, the arts, you never know. You know, if if, uh, if Greg hadn't done it, maybe somebody else would, but maybe they didn't. But I think what is absolutely safe to say is that imagining, <laughs> yeah, and, and imagining role playing as it is today is like trying to imagine jazz without Louis Armstrong or uh, uh, feature films without D.W. Griffith, although, mm-hmm. of course, uh, the, uh, not on a political level, but on on the, the level of influence on the on the art form. Yeah, that that what so much of what Greg did sort classical of, music without Haydn. Yeah, that it establishes uh, the boundaries and the parameters, and uh, perhaps someone it's, would have it, done that if Haydn were also simultaneously <laughs> Mozart, Beethoven, and one of the crazy German guys that I barely even know, it maybe Hindemith or something. Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, and even. The, the, what games, uh, did exist would also, by this point, uh, be very different because, of course, uh, D&D itself, the influences of, uh, all sorts of different waves of game design keep going back into Dungeons and Dragons. And, uh, it's hard to imagine, uh, you know, that the idea of let's have a streaming show where we explore the drama of, of role playing would, you know, that too might uh, not be such a thing. And that, uh, you know, certainly Mike Merles has said that the way that uh, D&D settings are presented now is uh, very much uh, influenced by uh, what Greg did. There were certainly other uh, complex fantasy worlds, the Empire of the Petal Throne, uh, but for reasons we might get into later, the uh, there was something about Greg's world of Glorantha that was particularly amenable to... Uh, being a role-playing game, although like Empire of the Petal Throne, it began as fiction. And uh, again, it's part of uh, what really uh, established the form. Uh, so before we uh, go on to sort of talk in detail about uh, Greg, uh, we should also note uh, another recent passing. Of someone who was actually, if in any other week, would have been you know, the, 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 the topic of sort of the same sort of discussion in terms of their seminal impact on the hobby. Uh, Duke Seyfried, who, uh, was with Heritage Miniatures for forever, was also one of the very core early people at TSR, along with Luzaki, basically helped create the way that people have bought 
uh, role-playing games up until the coming of the internet, uh, by building out that store network, basically single-handedly, um, uh, did a number of very influential miniatures rules designs, um, did a, a, a set, I think called Napoleonic, and he did another set before that, I believe called combat or conflict, but it was, uh, he was a, a giant in the world of miniatures role, uh, uh, miniatures wargaming, which of course is the precursor field to, uh, role playing games, uh, via Gary and Dave. And so, uh, for, for Duke to have left us as well is another great, uh, hole in, in our history as an art form. And then of course, I think the younger set of, uh, which includes in this case, Robin and me know Duke best, not so much for having played his minis games, many of which were created before we were born, uh, certainly before I was playing war games. Uh, but uh, seeing his insane extravaganzas, as he called them, these miniatures displays that he would have at conventions that were lucky enough to have Duke at them. And he had a model of Helm's Deep, complete with a zillion miniatures of orcs and elves and dwarves and the whole nine yards that he would tell you. Uh, he had built based on the charts and maps that he had created during it after conversation with Professor J.R.R. Tolkien in England, that he'd gone over there, uh, learned at the feet of the master and brought the knowledge of what Helm's Deep was supposed to look like back to us jerks in the Midwest. <laughs> um, uh, and was an amazing guy just as a human being, you know, to, to meet or to talk to. Uh, but again, because he was so very much, uh, miniatures, uh, war- focused by the time I knew him and I, you know, for, I didn't have a basement until 2001, so I couldn't get into miniatures. It was the law. So, uh, I, I didn't know him or, and I certainly didn't know his work as well, but he was another, uh, gigantic figure, certainly in the early days of the art form and of the industry. Robin, do you have Duke Seifried thoughts? I interviewed him for the, uh, 40 years of, uh, Gen Con, uh, book. Uh, Greg is in there too. And, uh, uh, that was a time, uh, it was about 10 years ago when, uh, we, uh, in hobby gaming were not used to having lost anybody. So that's kind of an odd thing to, to reflect on is that as, as time is marching on, we've uh, lost Gary and, uh, and Gygax and Dave Arneson, who I interviewed for that book. And now we've lost Greg, uh, and Duke. He was a, um, as you suggest, a really, uh, a fun raconteur. Uh, sometimes, uh, you find when you're writing an oral history that you have got to be very careful when you place, uh, certain anecdotes in there because, uh, <laughs> perhaps, uh, not correct in every detail. Uh, for example, his version of the, uh, disappearance that kicked off the, uh, anti D and D craze, uh, had all the horrible things that were supposed to have happened, yeah. uh, and didn't happening in his version of the story. Um, but he was a, a delightful person to talk to. And as you suggest, those, those extravaganzas, uh, are incredible, and he also did work in uh, museums, creating museum displays using that same uh, skill set. And I understand there's uh, you know, doings afoot in order to make sure that his uh, extravaganzas are, are preserved uh, for future generations, and perhaps they'll get to keep going to conventions. Uh, so it's uh, sort of an extra shocker, as you know, we, we, you and I can still, I think think our, ourselves as the young whippersnappers who came yeah, along. The, 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 the guys were going to come in and blow this hobby open and show it what for. Or, or rather we were the, the, the sort of the, the kids who were in awe of the previous generation. And, uh, I, I kind of think of our cohort as kind of being uniquely blessed in terms of really feeling a sense of 
unity with each other and also uh, with people, uh, the people we idolize, like Greg, and getting to go and, you know, hang out with Greg Stafford and meet him and find out that he was, you know, very open and welcoming and a fun person to uh, hang around with. And, and to be enveloped in that is something that, uh, again, because uh, the first generation, there was there was a bunch of feuding between people. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's one of the things Greg talked about in the, the 40 Years book is, you know, there was a contingent at TSR who thought that nobody else should be making role-playing games. And so uh, <laughs> in the early days, like at the conventions, they deliberately give everybody else crappy booths and stuff. And there was ill will and there was ill will over uh, stuff like, you know, the uh, origins versus Gen Con wars, uh, which, uh, you know, now since Gen Con is so gigantically huge and uh, origins is a very big regional con, it seems weird right. that, uh, that there was a big battle, but there or fights over Gamma or whatever. So, uh, you know, there was... There uh, was war in heaven. Yeah. If you wanted to see a flash of anger from Greg, you could get him to reminisce about uh, some of the fights and the feuds back then. But we came along and, and you know, we were just all sort of starry-eyed uh, kids getting to hang out with our idols and all kind of bonded with each other. And then uh, later, of course, uh, next generations of uh, role players were not so lucky and things, especially due to the internet and harassment, have sort of fallen back into the classic feuding model that, you know, is generally the default in fandoms of all kind. And in fairness, in all human societies. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, us starry-eyed, not so much kids anymore, I think got a... A golden age. A, a rose-colored introduction to, to mm-hmm. the hobby and, and still uh, try to hold on to that. And I guess that brings us back to, to Greg in, in general and our uh, friendship with Greg. Uh, but let's, uh, we've already talked about, you know, in broad strokes, his, uh, influence on the field. So, uh, uh, I guess it's time to sort of lay down some facts and start, uh, listing some things. So let's sort of go back and forth here and, and, uh, hit different points. So Greg was born in, in Hartford, Connecticut in 1948, and he, uh, went to college at Beloit in the Midwest. And, uh, there in 1966, uh, he starts writing, about his world of Glorantha and his uh, original uh, fiction that he was writing, because, of course, 66 is uh, a nearly a decade before the invention of RPGs. Uh, it's So he's, uh, you know, another fantasy author, a budding fantasy author, writing about his world and beginning to see it. And uh, those and, original... And a war gamer as well. Yeah, yeah he was, absolutely. He was playing um, uh, straight-up war games. And so, uh, but he's beginning to en- envision this world, and he's envisioning the section of it that is not generally now seen as the, as the sort of the main focus, but he's off in the more overtly European medieval uh, part of Glorantha, off in the West, writing his first uh, adventures that begin to become this world that he uh, begins to see uh, and, and experience. And so, as you suggest, he is a, a war gamer. And so, uh, as he develops this world and as he becomes more involved in the hobby, he decides to uh, create a uh, sort of Avalon Hill style complex war game set in his world of Glorantha. And this is where the sort of the basis of the mythology of the game that its adherents uh, know begins to really develop and come out. And that's through a game called uh, White Bear and Red Moon, which he designs in 74. And he goes around and looks for uh, someone to publish it. And of course, the number of entities publishing war games in 74 is 
extremely low. Yeah, it's it's actually uh, bigger now than it was then. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Um, uh, especially when you start to consider all sorts of other tabletop games. But I mean, straight up, you know, Hex Encounter War games, I think there are more publishers now than there were then. And so at any rate, uh, he discovered uh, the thing that was uh, uh, true then and is uh, a little less true now, but still definitely a thing, which is that uh, the game companies are all run by people who got into game publishing in order to publish their games. And so therefore they're not so interested in publishing somebody else's game. They've got their own pile of 72 different ideas that they want to uh, get out there. And so according to uh, Greg's sort of point form story of his life that he had up on his uh, blog at one point, and that you can find by linking to an archive of from this Wikipedia page, a tarot reading told him to found Chaosium. <laughs> this is why they say don't mess around with tarot cards. <laughs> yes, exactly. If a tarot card tells you to form a hobby game company, uh, especially in before there's an industry, uh, but it told him to do that. And so he then founded uh, Chaosium, which, uh, you know, even without his work, as we've already suggested, uh, casts an incredible creative I don't want to say shadow, uh, a bright beam across the, yes. the hobby. And uh, so 78 uh, brings us to uh, RuneQuest, uh, which was a design collaboration with Steve Perrin. Steve uh, did the core rules that then were later simplified into the basic role-playing system, which underlie pretty much all Chaosium role-playing. And in particular, you can sort of look at his work and the, the stuff that's the really crunchy side of it, the, you know, the strike ranks and the hit locations and the individual armor pieces uh, are all Steve's side of that sort of yin-yang between the extra simulationist take on things plus Greg's mythic world of Glorantha and the idea that you, rather than character classes, you have cults that you belong to where you emulate the various gods in uh, Greg's uh, extremely rich and uh, complex uh, mythology. And so, uh, that is the, uh, the game that still has huge adherence and has now come back in a new edition that, unlike some previous editions, uh, is all about getting back to, uh, Greg and Steve's original vision. Steve uh, and worked on it in addition to Greg having a, a look in through, uh, Jeff Richard, who currently at Chaosian is the chief, chieftain of Glorantha. Um, and so Ken, why don't you pick up the, uh, the narrative with some more of uh, Greg's amazing credits. All right. So as we go past the foundation of Chaosium and the birth of RuneQuest, uh, we have to note that Greg is um, mentioned uh, prominently in the credits for uh, the original Call of Cthulhu, because not only did he sort of found the company that created Call of Cthulhu and co-design the rules engine that became part of Call of Cthulhu, uh, I think that he was influential in the form Cthulhu eventually took uh, before it reached uh, the tabletop. I mean, Sandy was, is, has been, I think, uh, clear and correct that he took the assignment and went away and designed it and brought it back to Chaosium, at which point they were appalled by the cosmic horror and um, uh, <laughs> depressing gameplay. That you are supposed un- to be appalled by cosmic horror. That you, is. you are supposed to be appalled, but maybe not by the process of playing the game. And I don't know how many of the breakers and uh, buffers that got into the final 1981 edition of, of Cthulhu were, were placed there by Greg versus by Steve or by somebody else. But his name is in the, is in the credits for a reason. And it's not just because he owned the company. Um, 
uh, he had, I think, probably a great deal to do with the sort of notion of, you know, saying, let's treat, uh, the, the Lovecraft universe as a, as a mythos. Let's look at all the possible directions you could be going with all these gods and things. I, that sounds, that feels very much like a Greg fingerprint to me. So, uh, when, uh, Call of Cthulhu puts Chaosium not just on solid financial footing, which it had been with, with RuneQuest, RuneQuest was a giant success at the time, but sort of into, oh my god, there's spare money for game design. Uh, by then, uh, 82, 83, Greg begins work on Pendragon, uh, which comes out in 1984. And is, uh, a legendary triumph in the field, which is so legendary that we're going to have to talk about it in much more detail later on in the show. But then that gives, I think, Chaosium the muscle to go after the Ghostbusters, uh, license, which they get in 1986. Greg, Sandy, and Lynn Willis build Ghostbusters. And I guess they didn't get the license though. It no, was that was West, West End, End Games. License. And that's, yeah. uh, well, b- before, before we get afraid of some ghosts. Uh, Let's let's do a break and then we'll be right back. Let's flee. In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touched the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity, caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Height, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green, the role-playing game, to the award-winning gumshoe engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green. Grab it in your store or from the Pelgrane Press website. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe, what are you waiting for? The end of the world? Okay, and so we're back, and we're only up to 1986 in Greg's career. We're we're, we're talking about Ghostbusters. Right, and it's the really interesting sort of anomaly in the Chaosium story, because it's a game that's designed by the Chaosium team for another company, for West End Games, and therefore doesn't use the basic role-playing system. And uh, I got to think that a lot of the core rulesy stuff is is Sandy in particular, uh, because, for example, it does something like introduce dice pools. And, yeah. Uh, so uh, another incredibly inf- influential thing, uh, but what I think uh, got to guess that Greg had uh, more of an influence on was its idea that he is not trying to simulate the physics engine of the world of Ghostbusters, but that rather Ghostbusters is an entertainment property that you expect certain things from, and that therefore 
uh, you emulate it. I'm, I don't imagine he used those words. And uh, <laughs> that's uh, that basically lays down the thread that, uh, with a few detours, I've been following in my design work ever since. And, and maybe we'll talk a bit more about Ghostbusters as we go on. But uh, speaking also, uh, there's of, often a question of, you know, what is what is the first story game? And some people look at Over the Edge, and some people, in fact, uh, look at uh, Hero Wars slash Hero Quest, which is the rules engine I designed a little later on uh, for Glorantha with uh, Greg. But uh, you could also look at 1989's Prince Valiant, uh, which is all about boiling down the role-playing experience to the simplest possible rules, uh, one that uses basically coin flips. It's literally a coin flip. <laughs> it is a, a very strong uh, d- design and an exercise in uh, you know, just stripping role-playing down to its very simplest elements. Again, to uh, generate something that feels like Hal Foster's comic strips. And uh, I think that's one of those ones that's like, you know, a game designer's game in that all of us picked it up and, uh, or, you know, I was, a, I was not a game designer when I picked it up, but right, yeah. uh, those of us who became game designers, uh, I think, are the <laughs> ones who bought it. <laughs> it's the velvet underground of um, uh, of role-playing games. It is, yeah. It's it's the sex sex pistols playing uh, Manchester. But really, that that is, you know, that is the story game right there. That is the roots of the story game, and it might be more widely known as something other than an influence if it had uh, based itself on, you know, something more current than the beautiful Arthurian comic strips of Hal Foster. Yes. Yeah, if it had been based on, say, 10th century B.C. Levantine uh, warlords, then then we'd be talking mass appeal, right? Uh, another thing that Greg did in between revolutionizing our art form is also single-handedly resuscitate the market for Lovecraftian fiction by realizing that playing Call of Cthulhu uh, depended on enjoying Lovecraft stories by 1990 they were back in print thanks to Ballantine, but uh or del rey i guess uh but the um uh rest of the mythos was still languishing in obscurity and so greg began a fiction line at chaosium designed initially to bring back into print the sort of classics of lovecraftian uh, uh fiction and uh, some of the not so classics of lovecraftian fiction quite frankly because as i've said before in other contexts bad uh, history and bad fiction make sometimes for the best gaming because the i could fix that uh, uh part of your brain is right there at the front but either way they began with a close reprint of um uh uh, Spawn of Cthulhu, uh, one, uh, which they uh, cleverly retitled um, uh, the Haster Cycle, because as uh, Robert Price, who became the series editor, uh, famous uh, Lovecraftian scholar Robert Price, uh, realized the the connecting thread in that uh, story uh, cycle was not um, uh, Cthulhu, but Haster, and that uh, Haster was the sort of star of that, and then that gave them the idea of being able to do one of those books for all the great old ones, which is the way you sell books, ladies and gentlemen, is tell bookstores that there's going to be a series of them. Later on, they brought back into print Disciples of Cthulhu, which was one of the um, uh, old-school OG Cthulhu Mythos anthologies, and then began to be a market for other newer writers to submit. Uh, some of them were people who Price knew from Lovecraftian scholarship and fooling around, and some of them just became Lovecraft readers by reading Chaosium fiction and were drawn in. And I'm thinking of people like uh, Lois Grash, for example, who uh, has, I don't know how many collections now through Chaosium, but more than one. And uh, many other authors have basically seen their career uh, launched or flourish 
via Call of Cthulhu fiction and Chaosium fiction broadly, which I guess eventually also brought out his novel King of Sartar. Yeah, so so King of Sartar is is uh ninety three and it is about it is set in Glorantha and uh it sort of covers the uh history of uh uh Dragon Pass in general and Orlanthi mythology and that that's the culture that exists in Dragon Pass through uh, just a series of uh, myths that have been gathered together by a scholar in a future era. And it is, I sort of um, compare this to Dictionary of the Khazars by Milorad Pavic in that it uh, tells a sweeping narrative through a series of scholarly fragments, mm-hmm. which is, which is as good a summary by the way of Greg as yes. you are going to get. <laughs> yes. And there are other works that, uh, uh there's a, a big pile of, of uncompleted uh, works that are written in a more conventional narrative voice, but Greg always found it much more easy, easy to sustain this sort of, um, mythic voice, which is kind of, uh, half, uh, deep background role-playing game stuff and uh, half uh, kind of literary metafiction. And one of the, the questions that sort of connects this uh, the book of King of Sardar is who is uh, Argrath, the uh, character who sort of rises up at the beginning of what is the usual start date of a RuneQuest game and kind of uh, through a series of military campaigns changes uh, the whole world. And in that... Uh, if you just go by King of Sardar, it's written from a far enough away uh, period of historical distance that you're not sure how many Argrass there were and what are we talking about and what's going on. But And it's (laughs) in that level of uncertainty that I think also makes it work as a, uh, as a meta novel in addition to a, uh, a role-playing property. So it's certainly by no means uh, not even close to being the first role-playing fiction, but it may be, the great work of role-playing inspired experimental literary fiction. Uh, and so that, that's a thing that I wanted to particularly uh, highlight in his uh, career. And that uh, was an outgrowth of the Chaosium book line. And uh, at, at that point, the uh, books uh, were doing so well in the book market that even when I uh, came along to write uh, uh, what was first called Hero Wars and was then called Hero Quest, uh, the uh, idea was that those books would have the same form factor as the trade paperbacks that they were selling uh, really well into uh, retail because uh, the thought at that time was that, well, maybe game retail will go away. Maybe we should be trying to sell these uh, through mainstream uh, bookstores. So it had, uh, you know, a, a an influence on the shape of how later role-playing products were. But in uh, 99, Greg... Uh, uh, leaves Chaosium, it sort of splits into its constituent parts, and uh, that leaves Chaosium as sort of mostly uh, the uh, Lovecraft-based uh, company, and then uh, Greg goes off and takes Glorantha and tries to create Kickstarter before Kickstarter exists, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. and have the worldwide... Glorantha fan community um, who are now older and and have money and want to support something that at that point doesn't necessarily look like it has the biggest commercial appeal and sell everybody shares in in uh, in in Isri's and therefore get you uh, a, a new company that can afford to publish uh, these games. Now it turns out that violates uh, several security laws in major American states, and that didn't quite happen. But Isari's uh, 
uh, still came along and and brought uh, Hero Quest and Hero Wars in, into the uh, equation. I guess we want to skip ahead a bit. Uh, 2003, uh, there's a little break in uh, his uh, his gaming career. He and his wife Suzanne move to Oaxaca, Mexico, where they teach and uh, where uh, Greg gets uh, more involved in or further involved in his uh, shamanic studies. Uh, so he's uh, told me some interesting stories about his his time uh, there. Uh, but by 2007, he's back in the world of gaming and wins the first of two Diana Jones Awards for the Great Pendragon Campaign, which you're going to tell us a bit more about. Right. <laughs> and again, I could go on forever about the Great Pendragon Campaign, but for the nuts, let us just say that uh, it uh, had been sort of present in Ovo back in the original Pendragon, and you can look at things like the Boy King and some of the earlier Pendragon supplements as sort of first cuts at bits of it, because... At the time, the notion of releasing a role-playing campaign uh, for a, a game that would be hundreds of pages long, even, you know, uh, Massive Nerlathotep was busted up into individual little pamphlets so as not to frighten anyone. The the end result, anyway, is a game in which you begin before the uh, birth and emergence of Arthur in the time of Uther Pendragon, uh, as Uther wields but welds the Britons together into one high kingdom. Uh, then you and your descendants see the rise of Arthur, uh, join the round table, uh, quest for the grail and are destroyed at the battle of Camelon along with Camelot and the round table and the Arthurian dream. And it is a generate multi-generational saga. It is the sort of apotheosis of Pendragon role-playing. Everything Pendragon is about is in that campaign. And it is, uh, you know, we've, we've talked about, uh, games as literature or games as movies or whatever. This is game. This is its own art form. This is game as game, but in a, with a narrative sweep that is literally the rival of Idols of the King or the Nibelogan lead or Mallory. Even I think Greg probably would have pushed back very strongly if I'd said that he'd equaled Thomas Mallory, his great, uh, literary, uh, inspiration. And I think one of his personal heroes, given that Mallory was sort of a scamp and a scallywag as well. Um, but the, but, but Great Pendragon campaign does in role playing what those other art forms do, uh, what those other piece, masterpieces do for their art forms is it presents the Arthurian story. And if you have not looked at the Great Pendragon campaign, I very much encourage you to go out and, and just be amazed because it is amazing. And again, it's something that the technology Greg uh, unveiled partially with the boy King and then fully with the uh, great bed dragon campaign and is still languishing. But the notion that you can do a scenario in a page is something that not everyone has picked up on. Although I guess the one page dungeon guys have begun to sort of figure that out. Um, so there's a lot of uh, meat there just in terms of the game design and the game technology over and above the for under and beneath in this case the the ma- magnificent Arthurian uh story that it tells going uh not just through the the story arc but also through the archaeology it it begins in the historical dark ages and ends in Mallory's fantasy middle ages it, it's a magnificent piece of 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 mythography as well as of history and role playing and just uh Arthurian literature uh meanwhile in Glorantha land Isaris goes the way of a weary trader and uh the uh, Glorantha license and uh, the Hero Quest uh, rule system uh, are then taken over by uh, Moon Design, uh, which is a company run, speaking of starry-eyed kids, uh, by some uh, uh, other friends who 
were, uh, if not uh, as much devoted to Glorantha as I am, even more so in spades, uh, Rick Mites uh, and uh, Jeff Richards. Uh, uh, Rick, for many years, was known as the ultimate uh, collector of uh, Glorantha stuff and published indexes to Glorantha and was a master auctioneer. And uh, uh, Jeff uh, became uh, Greg's uh, uh, right-hand man in terms of uh, assembling and digesting and presenting uh, material from Glorantha. And, and by this time, Kickstarter really does exist. And so uh, Moon Design pre- presents its ultimate uh, product, which is a guide to Glorantha, which is not just uh, one, but two mammoth tomes uh, that uh, was uh, uh, financed by the worldwide love of Glorantha that's been uh, continuing to be fostered for, uh, for year and, after and year. And by worldwide, we mean Norway and other places. Um, Japan also. Yeah. It's uh, huge in Japan. That's why uh, ducks are considered a standard fantasy race in Japan because they're in Glorantha. And uh, 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 Japan is crazy for, or the Japanese gaming scene is crazy for, for Glorantha. So it really is, uh, you know, it's n- not just Norway. Um, and uh, <laughs> Although they're they're very, very uh, happy with, with uh, Glorantha in Norway. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm not going to, and, you know, <laughs> Finland uh, loves some Glorantha. And, of course, the U.K., it's a, a big staple of that. And there's a whole, uh, all these years, there's been a scene of Chaosian-specific or Glorantha-specific conventions that uh, yeah. where the community goes. There was, to there was a Glorantha-con in Chicago one year, and I went mostly to see Greg and to meet Sandy Peterson, who at that time I'd never met. And I showed up, and I was un- I was a mundane. I was a muggle at a convention like with with there was nothing but gamers, but they were all playing crazy Glorantha stuff and talking about Glorantha, which to me is a thing that I admire, but I am not the aficionado of that that you are or that many or that the nation of Norway and Japan are. Um, I I think it's a great thing that Greg did, but it is not my uh, fandom. And so to be at a convention for um, most of a day. Without even knowing be, who Zarak Zoran is. Without even knowing that. I was a fake Glorantha girl right there, a, th- a thousand percent. Um, and, uh, Greg, of course, was, was, was lovely to me and Sandy was, was nice to me as well. Uh, but it was very much not my scene, but it was an amazing experience to do that, to, to be, to be, to be a, a muggle once. Um, and even, it, you wouldn't have thought that Greg could do that, could work that magic, but he did. So these massive books were, uh, wrangled by, uh, Jeff into the, the gorgeous, uh, uh, shelf crushing form that they, uh, finally took and, uh, that also uh, won a Diana Jones Award in 2015. And at the end of that, uh, the Moon Design guys, Rick uh, uh, Mainz and, and Jeff, announced that, indeed, they had come in to uh, acquire Chaosium. Uh, so Rick completed his Chaosium collection by acquiring by Chaosium. Chaosium. Yes. yes. <laughs> and so now, uh, you know, they've gone from strength to strength, and RuneQuest is back in spades, and uh, it was... Uh, beautiful to see that renaissance occur over the last couple of years and, and to be able to, and to see Greg presiding over it, Greg presiding over it and, and at the, uh, any awards. And, uh, you know, there was, uh, some thought a couple of years ago that that would have been Greg's last Gen Con. And, uh, because he has been, you know, had some, uh, health struggles. Uh, but he, he found the energy to come on out and he was his, uh, full, uh, uh, Greg self this uh summer even and uh on that note as i start to get a little verklempt let's go to a commercial 
Hey Ken, what did Isaac Newton discover in an alternate 1666? He discovered the way that alchemical truths can be... That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 3 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the Best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. Take a seat at the great round table of Patreon backers next to such heroes as... Theron Bretz. David Mascari. John Rogers. Ross Ireland. And Andrew Cowie. So I thought we would talk a bit about the great collaboration, the uh, ultimate team in gaming, and that is uh, Greg Stafford and Sandy Peterson. We have, we have Sandy, who is, um, uh, as you can tell by his later success in, in the computer game world, very uh, detail-oriented, uh, scientific-minded, detail, everything in its place, uh, all the widgets. And then uh, with the background of the uh, Church of Latter-day Saints in Utah uh, that he has been a member of forever, giving him a sort of a... A, a different grounding in uh, theology than Greg's sort of shamanic uh, uh, visions might give you. And I think that is another reason that their collaboration on not just Glorantha, but on Cthulhu and then on Ghostbusters is so fruitful because they had, they, they sort of, each of them brings the other half of the equation, but in a way that they are obliged to sort of immediately mutually respect the other's amazing uh, gifts and powers. It's not a, a butting heads. It's, you know, a Superman, Batman team up a world's finest type thing. Right. So you can kind of look at stuff in Glorantha and go, well, I bet this is Sandy. And you can yeah. definitely look at stuff in Glorantha and look, okay, well, this is super uh, Greg like, but together uh, their collaborations, you know, forms a fusion that is uh, greater than, uh, either of the individuals themselves, and I think is also a form of inspiration for the rest of us who collaborate with other people and our a- aspiration to, you know, work with people who, who up our game. And so, yeah. uh, you know, uh, one of the times I got, you know, choked up over the weekend was when, uh, Sandy released his tribute to Greg on social media. And, uh, it's, uh, it's important to talk about Sandy while we were talking about Greg because, uh, each of them, uh, enhanced and uh, and built on uh, the other's work, and and the crucible of that collaboration uh, was uh, Glorantha, which is the setting now for three different role playing games because Thirteenth uh, Age in Glorantha is now out. So there is, yeah. uh, depending on your tastes, if you want to follow this up a bit more, uh, the uh, Rune Quest, uh, the original game that had that tension between super simulationism and gritty combat and the mythic world uh, uh, that 
uh, Greg has created uh, is back in a form that after some sort of uh, increasingly off-model versions uh, done by uh, third-party companies is now uh, back and, and restored to the original vision, but with uh, subtle hints of uh, the developments of role-playing design since then uh, uh, sneaking in at the, at the corners. Um, and so the importance of Glorantha as a world is not just that it is a very, very detailed world with a lot of different uh, cultures, human and otherwise, coming into collision with each other, because, of course, there are other detailed fantasy worlds. Uh, Forgotten Realms uh, is, you know, often detailed down to the lap to, you know, where the taverns are. But it's a world that is based on the idea of unity between peoples, but one that presents it in a non-naive uh, way. So there is no good and evil as uh, forces uh, that are uh, have an objective quality in Glorantha, but rather every culture thinks that it is good and that its neighbors uh, are bad. And uh, mm-hmm. the uh, lesson that, that they learn again and again and then unlearn uh, through the cycles of Gloranthan history is that the world will be destroyed. Disaster will come when uh, people forget the need for unity. So, uh, very, you know, one of the pivotal events in the in the backstory of where the uh, bleed between uh, God time and the mortal world uh, was was unfixed until a time when chaos comes into the world and attempts to destroy everything until all of the other cultures uh, find a sense of unity the uh, there's a mystical experience called the uh, the I fought we won battle and then that is followed up again uh, by a a more practical military engagement called the unity battle. And this theme crops up again and again of their cultural subjectivity uh, coming into collision with the, the need for people to cooperate with one another in order to have a uh, hope of surviving. And when you read King of Sartar, for example, it is not Earth, but you can see that Greg started with Earth because the uh, descriptions of the uh, different political alliances and how they, uh, different groups constantly switch sides and they betray each other and the good guys turn out to be the bad guys and uh, sometimes the apparent uh, bad guys turn out to be the essential good guys you need to help save the world. That the, that this is, and, and it's definitely a world where the humans are enjoy no particular privilege as being uh, uh, virtuous and if, if anything are, uh, you know, put to shame by, by the tragic uh, trolls, you know, they have to eat uh, lots of uh, things, and sometimes that includes others. Uh, but you know, you got to eat. Yeah. So the the idea of a history that you can't necessarily fully understand from an objective point of view, because every culture has its own uh, view of that history, is I think much closer to, for all its mythic resonance, a simulation uh, as really anything else that it. So that there's something uh, profound going on, not only in Greg's appreciation of myth and how it influences cultures, but also how uh, uh, the, the the grittier reality of the history interacts with uh, uh, cultural uh, fractures. And there's also a, a fun sense of, of whimsy as well. It's not all uh, super... Uh, deep and anthropological. There's uh, <laughs> no, there's a lot of, and, and th- this is one of the things that I think that knowing Greg, you feel like you knew Hesiod or somebody because 
Greg would put ridiculous in-jokes into Glorantha with the same seriousness that you see that he would put straight-up mythological extrapolations into Glorantha. And the fact that the differences were not obvious is, I think, goes more to demonstrate how myth actually forms than any number of tiresome uh, 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 modern um, uh, anthropological works. Because if you watch Glorantha be being formed by Greg, you, you, you can imagine Hesiod saying, you know what? Screw the Athenians. I'm putting this in. And having that that moment then become theological reality, but in no way a lesser myth or a dumb myth or a myth that you ignore. It's, it's part of the story and it, and it, and it weaves in and it becomes part of that organic whole. And it's, it, it, it's just an amazing uh, way to see him do these things. And again, because of my, my, I guess my outsiderness, when I would see him, him create or we would talk about him creating it, a lot of times it would be in that sort of, uh, ironist tone, because of course Greg was a master of, uh, being the, the guru that you wanted to, 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 to meet at every moment. So with me, it was, it was very much a, a sort of an ironical, um, uh, with, uh, of course with, with love because everything Greg did was with love, but a sort of, Hey, Ken, look at this cool thing. I just did look at this hack. I just pulled, uh, as opposed to, um, this is a deep spiritual truth that I'm revealing, uh, type and approach. So Ken, I've rhapsodized about Glorantha, so it's time for you to rhapsodize about the, uh, importance of, uh, Pendragon as, uh, as a design. I mean, well, I mean, Pendragon was, uh, like I say, uh, Greg began conce- conceptualizing it as a game in 82 or 83, and then it came out in 1984, and, it remains a cutting edge design. It is uh, well in advance of the feel of the state of the art right now. It contains things like the dueling traits created by the ideologies you believe and the passions that your character is overmastered by, both things that are barely present in some games designed last year. Uh, I, I think that we have, you know, just about gotten in Vampire the Masquerade development to where Greg was in 1984, for example. Right. So, and, and like a lot of uh, important innovations, very controversial in its day because it, oh, absolutely. it forced people, were people super mad. to reconsider what they thought were bedrock unwritten rules of how uh, role-playing should be. And here, the rules were telling you how to role play your character. And many people were, were uh, shocked and appalled, shocked and outraged. And uh, the best part is that Greg said, eh, <laughs> another thing that sort of, uh, I think, I don't know if it shocked them, but it sort of set everyone back on their heels. And it's something that you could never do today. Although Greg did it again in 1984 is there's no way to play a magician in Pendragon. You're playing a knight. You can't even play like a, a rogue or a, or a buddy of a knight. Nope. You're playing a knight. Right. And that's why the inverse of it becomes Ars Magica, which of course is heavily right. influenced by uh, Pendragon as but, well. But it, when we were doing, you know, the Lord of the Rings game way back in the day, we at no point, and all of us, I think, were Pendragon fans, said, hey, here's a fun idea. What if you can't play Gandalf? Because we knew that would be shouted down by everybody. So you can play Gandalf in Lord of the Rings and have a great time. But of course the right answer is what is Greg's answer. No, you can't play Merlin. Merlin's an NPC. Merlin shows up to ruin things. All the enchanters, <laughs> yes. uh, they don't help. They make things worse. It brings exposition so, and trouble. Exactly. <laughs> they, they are, the they're classic thing. NPCs. And, and so the, the, the notion that you're playing characters who then have to differentiate themselves through what they believe and what they fight for and what they're, 
shield looks like and what that means to them and how they raise their children becomes so core to your character because you can't just say, well, my character's the best at finding traps. Therefore, he's a thief. Therefore, we're done. Uh, no, you're all knights. You're all good at swinging swords and riding horses. And even if one of you is best now, the other one will get more glory and then be better than you. Uh, just because that's the way of the, of the world and that's the way of Pendragon. That's another thing that Pendragon did is, uh, by presenting the ability of the knights to change as they do things that, uh, make them more famous and gain them glory and, and fulfill the, uh, in many cases, their ideology. That created different incentives than just kill all the ogres and take their heads, which would have been, I think a lot of game designers would have said, great, that, I mean, if, what, what better? You get famous by killing ogres, problem solved. Greg sort of went beyond that. Yeah. Let's take the thing that people already do and, and slap some Arthurian paint on it. Right. And that's not what Greg did with, with, um, uh, Call of Cthulhu. He said, we have to find a Lovecraftian, uh, to, to build Call of Cthulhu. And again, he's like, we have to find an Arthurian. Oh, look, I'm an Arthurian. <laughs> that problem is solved. Um, but you have to build it from within, from understanding what the stories are about and, and the, and the myths are about. And that was, and that was Greg's approach, I think, to everything. And certainly in Pendragon, another thing, of course, that Pendragon did that nobody does is it provided a way for your character to, uh, improve the lot of people around him um, uh, by, you know, investing in, in agriculture and, and improving the fields and keeping more peasants alive. And that involves sacrificing some of your resources, but it's part of what you do as a knight. It's why you're a knight is to make life better for everyone. And the, the time scale is another huge innovation. Yeah. The, the generational time scale where you, you play your son uh, after you are too old to go on adventures. And uh, Greg said, in an interview that I did with him that is on my Facebook page and I'm sure other places that solves incidentally the big role playing problem of, ah, my character died, but I still want to keep my magic sword. It's like, great. <laughs> the reason that you know what your character did and know all of his enemies and have all the same goals is because you're his son. Go forth a knight. And that, that beautiful sort of inspiration that both solves a, a game design problem but solves it in a way that no other game designer had ever considered and that very, very few of them continue to consider is a part of the magic and the wonder of Pendragon. Right. And you're integrated with the world. You have responsibilities and, uh, you are, so it's, you're not just the troublemaking knight going around, uh, collecting ogre heads. Uh, that's just, uh, you know, if ogres come by, yeah, sure. You got to deal with them, but you have responsibilities to your community. You're tied to a community. You are not, a murder hobo, but rather you are supposed to uh, uphold the greatest virtues of your society and your elite mm-hmm. status is a responsibility even more so than it is a, a power that you wield. Yeah. The, the, the integration of everything into that single die 20 role and into those mechanics is also a remarkable thing. If you look at 1984 and even if you look at the way the game design would, and in many ways, Greg's fault because ghostbusters with the dice pool sort of blows open uh, game design technology for another, uh, 10 or 15 years. But the way that so many things just go back to the same very, very, very few game mechanics. It's super elegant game for one that is as long, uh, it, it just as big a rule book as, uh, Pendragon is. It's, it's not, I mean, we, we talk about Prince Valiant being an elegant design because it is elegance just to a, a pure, of virtue, but the elegance of Pendragon is, I think, something that people lose in a, in a lot of the uh, armor and fripperies and our and you know um, uh, uh, all the other sort of medievalia that surround it. But the rules mechanics 
are, I think they fit on a page probably. It's, it's an amazingly tight, uh, well-constructed game. And, and again, Greg says, yes, you want the, the, the notion of one table, one king, one, uh, uh, ideal, but you also only want to have to remember one die roll. <laughs> and that it, it's again that practical plus the mythic becoming the game. Now we've already talked about Prince Valiant and, and Ghostbusters and their, uh, importance. Uh, they're also, uh, he designed a number of board games, including an Elric board game. There are other ones we haven't mentioned. Uh, you will have to hear a board game podcast, uh, to have someone uh, speak uh, deeply to those designs. But there is another one that we, uh, recently talked about on the show where Greg adapted a French, uh, game and, and made it uh, more Gregly. And, and this, uh, I guess this gets to the part of the story where you are able to collaborate with Greg, and that is Nephilim. So why don't you uh, briefly uh, tell people for the purposes of this being a complete bit of audio about Greg, about uh, Greg and Nephilim. I mean, the Nephilim began as the notion of some French game designers, Fabrice Lamadet and Patrick Weil. It was a very popular role-playing game in France. Uh, like many French role-playing games of that era, and perhaps even now, it was more of an abstract ideal than it was an actual rules set. And so when they said, we would like to license it for a Chaosium, they were, but of course, and there you go. And then they realized, we don't really have a rules engine. And it wound up with the very BRPE engine under it. But Greg began to, I think, um, uh, influence the direction of how the magic worked. Uh, lots of the other sort of specific questions. Uh, they brought in some other uh, game designers on it, but it was very much a Greg overseen project and very early in the process they'd come up with a playtest document and sent it around and I got a hold of it and I wrote them back 11,000 words of uh back sass mostly and I got an email from Greg Stafford who I had met at the Chaosium booth but was uh, conscious of his godhead and so uh our conversations were mostly, you know, worshiper to God, not human to human. But I got an email from Greg Stafford, his own personal self saying, we would like to use your feedback in the core book. We'll pay you for it. And what's the next book you're going to write for us in the line. And I had enough presence of mind after (laughs) dancing around the living room for four or five uh, minutes slash hours to write back and say, I would like to write the secret societies book. And that's, that was my first gig in role-playing was to write that book uh, at the specific uh, insistence, not even urging of Greg Stafford. He took as a, as an assumption that I was going to write something and he just wanted to know what it was to clear out the space on the schedule, uh, which was a remarkable right. uh, leap of faith <laughs> given what he had seen from me before. And, and um, in a way, a template uh, for yes. everything that you've done since. Uh, yeah. Just as uh, my first full book, uh, GURPS Fantasy 2, is straight out of the Stafford playbook. It's about here's a uh, a culture and uh, here's the uh, you know it's not a, a European culture it's it's not a clearly uh, based on any uh, earth culture although it uh, borrows elements uh, from uh, all sorts of other general principles of anthropology and then uh, you know and here's what their pots look like and here's uh, and the, the it's sort of an anti-glorantha book in one way in that uh, the gods are terrible, right? There's no, yeah. <laughs> and being close to the gods is the worst possible thing. And they're unfortunate enough to be very close to where the gods live. And so it's sort of a, uh, kind of a fantasy horror take on things, but very much, uh, you know, based on, from my, uh, interest learned, uh, from Glorantha of here's 
of course this is what's in a role-playing book. Uh, and uh, again, the questions of, you know, well, how is it playable for everyone? It doesn't matter. It has its own, you know, internal uh, consistency. And so that was uh, a very literary and because it was a GURPS book, very divisive uh, book uh, <laughs> that, you know, was my calling card into role-playing and, and uh, combined with uh, my little bits of setting work for Over the Edge uh, with major Greg fan uh, Jonathan Tweed at the helm. Uh, together, those two things, you know, quickly propelled me into be able to to do this full time. So I guess uh, let's uh, let's hit another break and then we'll come back. We'll talk a little bit more about uh, knowing Greg as a person and uh, and Greg as a as a role model. Born of the U.S. government's 1928 raid on the degenerate coastal town of Innsmouth, Massachusetts, the covert agency known as Delta Green opposes the forces of darkness with honor but without glory. Delta Green agents fight to save humanity from unnatural horrors, often at a shattering personal cost. In Delta Green, the role-playing game, you play those agents. Fight to save human lives and sanity from threats beyond space and time. The long-whispered-of slipcase set has now shipped. This stunning edition includes two full-color rulebooks. The Any Award-winning Agent's Handbook features rules for creating agents and playing the game. Gear! Combat! Dossiers! The Handler's Guide for the game moderator who presents the mysteries and horrors of the Cthulhu Mythos. Terrible Secrets of the Intelligence World and of eons pre-human. Percentile-based rules compatible with 20 years' worth of Delta Green scenarios and source books. A universe of cosmic terror lurks just out of sight. Can your agents stand against it? So, Ken, I guess this is the point where we discuss how you want to, you know, if, if you're a game professional, you want to try and be as Greg-like as you can in the way that you interact uh, with fans. Greg was uh, unfailingly gracious and welcoming and an extrovert's introvert or an introvert's extrovert. I don't know which he yeah. was, uh, but the uh, his welcome, welcoming, enveloping persona uh, to take a troublemaker at the booth and give him a book to write. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I, I aspire to the level of uh, warmth and welcome that uh, Greg was always uh, effortlessly capable of. I mean, one of one of the things about about Greg is that there was no obviously when you're Greg, uh, there there would be two possible responses, and we saw how Gary treated being a titanic figure, which was to demand credit from everyone and take it away from everyone and then be a jerk. And Greg's response was, I'm Greg Stafford. I, I, I've already got the credit. What I should do is give everyone else the credit and, and tell the world how great they are and make that, you know, sort of a, a goal and to assume that the people I'm interacting with are worth me interacting with them because I've been led there by the spirits or tarot cards or my own ineffable Greg sense. And I'm sure that Greg worked with, you know, more than his share of jerks, but he didn't let that, you know, the next person he met might be the next me or you or, or John Wick or somebody and, you know, respond uh, with creativity and, and love. And that is what he was trying to evince in everyone who played his games and certainly in everyone who designed games with, for, by or near him. And that 
that welcoming, that not being about you. And believe me, if you're Greg Stafford, you're entitled to make it all about you. Um, that was, that was the way that he was. And the, that sort of, uh, yeah, enough about me. Tell me about your triumphs sort of attitude that he had about everything. And if you weren't going to tell him about your triumphs, he was going to tell everyone else about your triumphs until you just spoke up out of self-defense in a lot of cases. And it was always delightful to see, uh, Greg with his peers and how much pleasure he took in being with them. I was lucky enough to be at a, a table at an event with origins where it was sort of one of those, uh, you know, fans get to hang out with you sorts of things. And it was mm-hmm. uh, me and Greg and Lou Zaki. And he was <laughs> making sure that Lou told all of his stories, uh, yeah. which are all also magnificent. Oh, I have, I have, I have, a, I have an at the table with Greg story. That is one of the at the table with Greg stories that I probably can't even tell all of, but I was lucky enough to be at a table with Greg and Peter Atkinson. Uh, and, uh, Greg, of course, uses his Greg powers for, I'm going to say good here. And he <laughs> leans across the table and he fixes Pete, Peter with his eyes, with his Greg eyes, with his Bonaparte eyes. And he says, Peter, I've always wondered what was the actual thing that brought down TSR? And Peter, you know, NDAs, schmendies, the whole story comes spilling out of Peter in, in beautiful raconturial detail, because of course, Peter is a great storyteller and a great open person as well. And I was just, oh, I hope to God they don't remember I'm here. (laughs) (laughs) I will just, I will just sit very, very quietly and and enjoy this magical moment. But that was a, that was a Greg thing was he's just, even when he's doing something for his own uh, benefit, he's doing it for everyone and making the other person the star of it. And it was, it was just such a magical moment to see, to literally watch the, the die, the dice hit the table as Peter, you know, Peter rolls wisdom versus Greg's charisma. And once more, you, you can't beat 18 double odd, right? Uh, yeah. And, and sometimes the, the stories you would get uh, from Greg, I don't, didn't quite know where to uh, file all of them, right? He told me the story yeah. once of his, uh, uh, you know, the shamanic ritual that he, uh, took part in where, uh, he and the, the leader of the ritual uh, summoned a rain of frogs. And, uh, absolutely that, that had, that happened exactly as he told it to me because he, he yeah. told it to me. Well, I mean, you, you can certainly argue that, um, Greg did a ritual and there was a rain of frogs. And then if you're asking about causality, that shows that you're not asking the right question. Exactly. And, uh, it's a shamanic question. Yes. And he, uh, was a board member and contributor to a magazine called Shaman's Drum for many years. He, uh, when I call him the grand shaman of gaming, that's in no way a metaphor because he wasn't grand <laughs> of gaming and literally a shaman. It's not a, an in joke, uh, by any means. I was lucky enough to work with Greg as a collaborator and I found that, uh, uh, very interesting and enriching to ask him questions about Glorantha and, uh, he definitely very much saw it. Uh, in his mind's eye and, and what he saw uh, over the years sometimes changed to the frustration yes. and chagrin of uh, some people in the Glorantha community. It's called continuing revelation, people. Look it up. Yes, exactly. Um, and there was a term for it, to be gregged, uh, to yeah. go out and write a bunch of stuff about Glorantha based on what had been published so far. And then uh, Greg would not only, of course, freely contradict what other people wrote, but he would freely contradict what he had written in the past and realize yeah. that he had not seen everything in its full clarity and it now was uh, was truly seeing what was going on. But, of course, that was always subject to revision because Glorantha uh, was always a work in progress. And if you, uh, as someone uh, who wants to interact with 
Greg's world. You, a lot of people want, wanted Greg to be, uh, an authority on, on the world who was right every time and didn't have to come to the right well, he answer. He was right every time. He was just right both times that he contradicted himself. Yes, he was, he was always right in the higher sense, but the details mm-hmm. necessarily of, of this cult or that cult. I remember one of the things that I saw at Glorantacon was an auction or a, an event of some kind where you could pay money to Greg to define some part of Glorantha for you. And so I forget what it wasn't a lot. It was like five bucks or or whatever, but but you'd pay your money. And I don't know if the money went to Greg or if it went to the convention or where I I don't care where the money went. It was just hilarious to watch it. But and then they would say, so Greg did the um, fill in Glorantha detail here, go East or West in the time of X. And Greg would say, well, obviously they went East. Boom. There you go. And he would just, it was like the most hilarious thing in the world. I mean, imagine George Lucas going to a Star Wars convention and someone saying, excuse me, Mr. Lucas, how many moons does Coruscant have? I'll tell you for five bucks. And it's just, it was, it was so wonderful and, and, and beautiful and, and funny as a, as a mundane to watch that process happen. But again, I'm sure that Homer took, you know, the occasional extra couple of statters to add someone's ancestor to the Trojan War, if that's what they wanted. Yes, that, that's the, the lore auction. And as you <laughs> yeah. uh, eventually got to, it wasn't about it wasn't about me getting to put a detail into Glorantha, because I, people didn't want their Glorantha. They wanted Greg's No, they wanted Glorantha, the right Glorantha. To the point where, <laughs> continue, you know, again, there's an acronym, your Glorantha uh, uh, may vary, which became your Glorantha will vary in order to try and give people the sense of creative freedom to mm-hmm. do their adaptation of, of Glorantha. But people didn't want to, you know, they didn't want to be inserting their own thing. They wanted answers. And, and uh, for many years, there was a very tantalizing thing, which was the one thing you weren't allowed to ask, which was what was the God learner secret? The God learners very briefly are from the second of the three ages of Glorantha. And they're the ones who are basically the Joseph Campbells who decide yeah. to uh, Jerks. Uh, find out how all, all magic and, uh, and the gods work. And there, there's a truth behind that, right? That they, the monomyth is a real thing that all of the God, you know, the grain goddess of this culture and the grain goddess of the neighboring culture, they're the same goddess, even though the two cultures don't agree on that. Uh, but uh, like Joseph Campbell, they decided to start uh, sanding off the corners and, uh, and trying to mush things together that don't quite mush quite that easily. So, uh, for many years, was, well, there was the God learner secret. And that was the one thing you couldn't ask. And of course, so half the questions were attempts to get at sideways at what the God learner <laughs> secret was. And, uh, you know, a, a, the God learner secret has now been pretty much revealed. And of course, is nowhere near as fun as not knowing as what the, the God learner in your head. Uh, secret was. I, I should, I should just jump in here and say that if people are, uh, are understandably de- demanding more Greg Stafford stories from us. Uh, go back and listen to episode 193, where we tell Greg Stafford stories for 15 more minutes. So don't feel like this is all the Greg Stafford stories. It, it couldn't be. We've barely even had an hour to talk about Greg. Um, but that's more Greg, uh, by Ken and Robin. Should that be the, the aperitif that you're looking for? Uh, yeah. And, and I will quickly recapitulate one of the things that I said. In, in the interest of having, a, again, a coherent chunk of audio about Greg, is that he um, did not uh, look at things in terms of, well, what will people like or what will people find fun, uh, but rather, what am I seeing in my world? So, for example, right. one of the issues when I was working on HeroQuest is all there's martial artists in the East and they practice mysticism. How do they 
do the fun things that they do. And at that point, we couldn't quite ever get Greg to square what mysticism was with characters who could do fun things. Now, that was a problem that has later been solved by Jeff and Greg. But it was never like, well, people are going to want to do X. Was not did not alter enter into his yeah. consideration about uh, Glorantha. But it's like, here's what I see. And here's what I, how I see it working. And if you ran into a roadblock of something that would be, uh, seem less entertaining for people, you had to come at that again later because, uh, he was not, um, calculating or analytical in that way of giving, you know, okay, well, yeah, let's throw a bone to the people who want it. No, he, he saw Glorantha. And if he didn't see it as being a part of Glorantha, that was it. So, uh, do you have a, I, I have a final uh, a story that Greg told me that I'm going to pass on. Do you have a, a Greg anecdote? I do. I, I, um, my final Greg anecdote is one of, I mean, there's so many. Just anyone who knew him, I'm sure, has a million stories, and all of them are better than mine. But there's a story that I think is pretty much unique uh, to me and uh, to Steve Kenson, who was there as well, and, and a co-collaborator and co-conspirator in every sense of the word. Um, and it was at Dundrakhan one year Greg used to go to Dundrakhan, uh, when we were all blessed and, uh, Steve Kenson and I had a habit of sneaking away and eating lunch at the Whole Foods during Dundrakhan and maybe drinking a bottle of wine and maybe not showing up again. Uh, but, uh, Greg came out to lunch with us, uh, which was a great honor. And Steve and I would usually buy a wedge of Stilton cheese to eat as our dessert at, at that lunch. And Greg apparently had never had Stilton cheese and said, what's that? And we were saying, well, it's only the best cheese in the whole world, Greg. Maybe you should have some. And in the spirit of experiment that was Greg's life, he said, all right, I'll try it. And he took a bite of Stilton cheese, which if people have had Stilton cheese, they can sort of see where the story is going. And if they haven't, I will tell you it is a powerfully effective cheese. And Greg said, oh, my God. I can, I can feel the cheese in my nose. I said, yeah, yes, Greg, that's how Stilton works. And he takes another bite and he says, I can feel it in my eyes. I said, yeah, yep, Greg, that'll happen. That or your whole head cavity is now filling with Stilton cheese. Uh, and he says, if I take a third bite, will I feel it in my pineal gland? And I said, well, I, I don't know, Greg. I, I don't know that anyone has ever felt it in their pineal gland, but if someone is, it's going to be you. And he says, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to back away from this, from this trial. I'm not prepared to, to have that third bite. And, he's, and then nothing we did would convince him to have a third bite of Stilton. He, he, he loved it. He, he still talked about it years later when he would talk to me, but he was like, nope, that's, that's a bridge too far. Um, I am being warned. Uh, by the unlike spirits. you, he cared about getting back to the convention. Which is a weird, um, uh, again, not always the case in, in, in my experience of Greg, but the, uh, but yeah, that, that notion of sort of being the person to introduce Greg to a new drug experience, that's gotta be a pretty rare, uh, life choice. So I, 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 I treasure that memory maybe more than I should, but certainly equally with, with many of my more apropos memories of, of Greg. And I know that Steve Kenson likewise, um, uh, thinks back on, on that afternoon with uh, nothing but love and delight. So that's, that's, I mean, it's not really about game design or anything except Greg's just joie de vivre. But again, that was a core part of Greg was just enjoying being Greg. I'll, I'll leave my air travel story for the previous episode you mentioned um, and tell you a story that I was not present for, but that uh, Greg recounted to me. Uh, and right. uh, it's also food based. Oh, a little food hut in our Greg hut. A little food, but in our remembrance of Greg. So uh, he uh, had a, a posse of people who, when he, they went out together to eat, their goal was always to find 
the most obscure, possibly horrible item on the menu and order it in order to properly experience it. And so one time they were all at a, uh, they were in San Francisco. And so of course you go to a Chinese restaurant when you're in San Francisco. And like uh, most true Chinese restaurants, they had a giant menu with 500 different items and then another hundred written up on the walls. And number 499 was fish lips. And so of course they ordered the fish lips. And the, yeah, uh, the like way the server goes, uh, what? Number 499 right here, the fish lips. Oh. And the waiter takes a look at the menu. He's clearly never seen the fish lips item on his menu and he's flabbergasted. Greg, Greg may have summoned it from the spirit realm. <laughs> uh, and so, well, uh, so he, he goes and checks with the head waiter and the head waiter comes up and he's, oh, uh, sorry, what is it that you want? Item 499, the fish lips. Oh, are you sure? No, we are absolutely sure. We do this. This is the thing we do. We take full responsibility. Uh, but this item intrigues us. We're, we need to have it. Oh, I don't know about that. So head waiter disappears in the kitchen. Uh, and, uh, the chef comes out and sorry, what? It's number 499. We want to order the fish lips. And then the, uh, chef's response was, no one orders the fish lips. <laughs> uh, so, uh, Greg never got the, the fish lips. Uh, but you know, even, uh, we all, uh, need to have, uh, have aspirations beyond our, our grasp. And that day, even the universe did not deliver fish lips to, uh, Greg Stafford and his, his friends at that table. So, uh, it's weird, uh, living in a world without Greg in it. Yeah. But, uh, we. It may not be possible. We'll be, we'll get back to you. Uh, well, uh, a message to all of my other colleagues. But this was sort of, for me, uh, if I'm going to sum up my personal response to Greg's passing, it's sort of like that time when we lost, uh, a Bowie and then, and then Leonard Cohen, except in this story, I know Bowie well enough that we've been to each yeah. other's homes. <laughs> uh, so, uh, my uh, closing message to all of my colleagues is that uh, it's getting dire right there, but none of the rest of you are allowed to leave the planet before I do. And I'm taking care to eat healthy and uh, do interval training four to five times a week. So uh, uh, that's my message to the rest of you. Uh, no more departures. Right. Well, I, I will endorse that. And, and as is my habit, I am drafting along in Robin's wake because if I can't go until Robin goes, then why do I need to work out? <laughs> uh, well, on that note, I, I think it's uh, time for us to, uh, uh, we're going to continue to remember Greg, but we're going to uh, remember him outside of the confines of this podcast. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask for Gown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Protect our runes from chaos by joining such Patreon backers as... Brendan Cloherty. Brian Malcolm. Graham Wills. Jack Ulick. And Jacob Ansari. Snag Ken and Robin Apparel and other erudite merchandise at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Wear such shirts as Nobody Wants to Be a Gate. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs> <laughs>